Chapter 50 Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's bill of divorce with which I cast her out? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Surely by sinning you sold yourselves because of your crimes as your mother an outcast. This is addressing the reprobate of the Lord's people who alienated themselves from God and broke the covenant relationship. Not that the Lord broke it and cast them off like a woman divorced, but they themselves cut themselves off and made themselves an outcast. In ancient times, a woman couldn't divorce a man, but a man could divorce a woman. Now it's the exact opposite, I guess. Now both can. In Isaiah, there are two women, the woman Zion, the virgin daughter of Zion, who are those who renew the covenant relationship with the Lord. And then there is the harlot woman. The harlot woman is not just Babylon. These are the Lord's people who are alienated from God, who have become alienated. At the same time that there are those who are coming into the covenant, there are others cutting themselves off from the covenant. And these are some of those that are being addressed. And that is because in the end of days, there are two entities of Israel. There's ethnic Israel that comes back in, like the Jews and the ten tribes. And then there are those who are mingled Israel, who have been the covenant people of the Lord in the last days, who then reject the covenant and become cut off. And that's what these are. And they become part of the Babylon conglomerate, or the Babylon synthesis, or Arch Babylon, as I call it. The ones who cut themselves off. There's a reversal of circumstances similar to that which happened when Christ was rejected of the Jews and the gospel was received by the Gentiles. The gospel is part of Israel's spiritual inheritance. It is the law of the covenant for Israel. If it was rejected in the days of Christ's ministry, it could go to the Gentiles because the lineages of Israel by that time had been scattered among the Gentiles, and so it could go to the Gentiles by right of inheritance. Otherwise, it would not have gone to the Gentiles. could not have. had nothing to do with the Gentiles. In the end of days, those same Gentiles, or the mingled lineages of Israel among the Gentiles, reject that gospel, and are cut off, and then the Jews and the ten tribes and others who were cut off anciently come back in. And that agrees with Paul's allegory of the olive tree, where he said the wild branches are grafted in temporarily, and then when they magnify themselves against the roots, and then they are cut off and the natural branches are grafted back in. He said that will be like life from the dead, because it will be a reconstitution of the covenant with the people of Israel. And that Israel will be born again. It will be like a nation reconstituted. Except this time it will be the nation called Zion in the book of Isaiah. Verse 2. Why was no one there when I came? Why did no one answer when I called? Was my hand too short to redeem you? Have I no power to deliver? The Lord came himself, of course, in person, in the person of Jesus Christ. But in an end-time setting, which is what the book of Isaiah is all about, from a structural standpoint, the whole book can be read as an end-time scenario. In the end-time, the Lord's servant comes, and he calls for Israel to repent and to return and to renew the covenant relationship and so on. And among the wicked, no one responds. It is as if they don't respond to the Lord himself when he comes or when he calls them. And the hand there is the Lord's right hand, 
the Lord's servant, which is powerful enough to redeem them, to redeem them in a temporal sense, from the calamities of the end time. As it says, by a mere rebuke I dry up the sea, rivers I turn into desert, it's very physical, their fish become parched for lack of water and perish because of thirst. I clothe the heavens with the blackness of mourning, I put up sackcloth to cover them. So, in a time of great calamities and judgment, there is deliverance for the righteous through the agency of the servant, like Moses delivered Israel. And it happens at the time when the sea is rebuked. As Moses rebuked the Red Sea, so the Lord's servant will rebuke the powers that be in that day, which are those of the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria is likened to a sea in commotion or the river in flood or power of chaos in the book of Isaiah. He rebukes and dries up the sea so they can come through in the exodus on dry land as they did anciently. Rivers I turn into desert. The Lord has power over these elements. As Moses had power, so the servant has power in the name of the Lord to do these things. Of course, fish becoming parched for lack of water and perishing because of thirst also is symbolic of people, people under a curse who perish in that day. It's part of the greater destruction that happens. The blackness of mourning with which he clothes the heavens or the sackcloth that he covers them alludes to the skies being darkened, the sun being darkened and the moon turned to blood and the stars will not give their light in that day. And darkness is a covenant curse. And darkness will be among the wicked. Chapter 60 says, Arise, shine, your light has dawned. Verse 1. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you, although darkness covers the earth and a thick mist the peoples, or polluting mist, that is the result of all of the destructions of those days, earthquakes, maybe nuclear war. Upon you the Lord will shine, over you his glory will be visible. So there will be light for one group and darkness for the other. And of course, here the context is the wicked, those who alienate themselves as a woman and her rebellious children alienate themselves from their husband and father. So these experience the darkness and the destruction. And they didn't answer when the Lord called. They didn't respond to the Lord's servant, so they were not delivered. My Lord Jehovah has endowed me with a learned tongue. Now the servant is speaking that I may know how to preach to those grown weary a word to wake them up. Weariness is a chaos motif. We saw the contrast between the weary and the unwearying in chapter 40, where young men faint and grow weary, and those who hope in the Lord are renewed in strength and don't grow weary. And the young men there were spoken of as those of Jacob or Israel of that level. They grow weary. And those are the ones to whom the servant is sent, the Israel-Jacob level. They have grown weary, and he now is to wake them up from their stupor, or from their sleep and from their weariness, and enliven them, and regenerate them. And he does it through preaching, and he's learned. Morning by morning he wakens my ear to hear as at study. My Lord Jehovah has opened my ear, and I rebel not, nor back away. Why does he say that? Is he proud of himself? Now he's holding himself up as a model for people to follow. He's an exemplar. They too can wake up and listen. He's taught by the Lord himself, directly, through the scriptures, through reading the scriptures, certainly, 
but also through the inspiration that comes when you read the scriptures or when you're at prayer or when you just pause and listen. He says, I rebel not nor back away, implying that there are those who do rebel and back away. I offered my back to smiters, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I hid not my face from insult and spitting. So in the course of serving God, one meets with opposition. He meets with opposition, and anyone who serves God will meet with opposition, as we will see through the rest of the book. Especially those who emerge out of Zion and become the servants of the Lord as he is a servant of God. They meet with all kinds of opposition from all different kinds of sources. Also, insult and spitting and all kinds of humiliation happen to the righteous people of God. Because they're always accused of various things, as you see in the scriptures. In chapter 61, verse 7, he says, Because their shame was twofold, and shouted insults were their lot. Therefore in their land shall their inheritance be twofold, and everlasting joy be theirs. After this period of humiliation and insult and so on, and embarrassment, there is a reversal of their circumstances when they inherit the great blessings that the Lord holds out for those who serve him. But he does require this of them, this interim humiliation, and it's part of the test of faithfulness. Verse 7, Because my Lord Jehovah helps me, I shall not be disgraced. I have set my face like flint, knowing I shall not be confounded. And that requires considerable faith and stamina. Here the servant is really emulating the Lord, the valiant one of Israel, in himself being valiant in the testimony of God. He trusts in that help, even when the going gets rough. The Lord helps him, and after the Lord helps him and empowers him, then he turns around and helps and empowers the people of Zion, as we'll see in chapter 61. After his reversal of circumstances takes place, then he turns around and helps those who are on the Israel-Jacob level who are repenting and turns things around for them and empowers them. Verse 8, He who vindicates me is near, which is the Lord. And also the word for vindicate is the same word in Hebrew as the word to make righteous. So he who makes me righteous, who justifies me, who vindicates, who legitimizes me, is near to help him. As in the name Emmanuel, God is with us. God is with those who rely upon him and serve him. He who vindicates me is near. Who has a dispute with me? Let us face one another. Who will bring charges against me? Let him confront me with them. Implying that there are those who have problems with this servant of God, those who are in authority, who put him down. It implies that they have some kind of dispute with him, but they don't confront him with it. They talk about it behind his back. And so he has to say, let us face one another, for goodness sake. Come on, be up front. And don't do this behind my back. Because he knows that they don't have a viable argument against him. Because he's sent of God. And God legitimizes him, as we've seen over and over. Where God, the creator of heaven and earth, is the one who calls and empowers his servant. Verse 9, See, my Lord Jehovah sustains me. Who then will incriminate me? All such shall wear out like a garment. The moth shall consume them. And that is a covenant curse, to be consumed by moths or by wild animals or by insects. Those are all plagues. And you remember when I said that whatever happens to him happens to the righteous? In chapter 51, verse 8, 
says the moth shall consume them like a garment, talking about those who ridicule the elect or the servants of God. So here we have people rejecting the servant. They're consumed by moths. And in the next chapter we have those who ridicule the people of God and they're consumed by moths. It's one example of what happens to him happens to them. It's one of the ways that Isaiah shows that he and they are part of the same entity, part of the same group. As um, King David was persecuted by the establishment, Saul was the establishment, and as Christ was persecuted by the establishment, which were the scribes and Pharisees, so the servant will be persecuted by the establishment of that day. Who are those who are in authority? Both political authority and religious authority. In Isaiah, those two are always on a par. Verse 10, chapter 50. Who among you fears the Lord and heeds the voice of his servant, who, though he walk in darkness and have no light, trusts in the name of the Lord and relies on his God? It implies, because these two ideas are in parallel, that those who fear the Lord are the ones who heed the voice of the servant. Those who don't fear the Lord don't heed his voice. And the servant is the light who is sent to light up the darkness of these people. So those are all word links. They're also metaphors. The voice is the servant himself in that sense, and the light is the servant himself. He personifies the light. Walking in the darkness, since the king of Assyria or Babylon personifies darkness, it means that you're influenced by him in a metaphorical sense, on that level. But if you trust in the Lord and rely upon God, it has its own power. Then the light begins to dawn for you. And things begin to make sense out of the chaos, out of the confusion. And then there is hope, and then there's deliverance, the possibility of deliverance for you from the powers of darkness, from the king of Assyria, from the destruction of Babylon, from the Sodom and Gomorrah calamity. Verse 11, that since he's talking mainly here to a reprobate group, the ones who are cut off, or the ones who have alienated themselves, the ones who have a bone to pick with him, this is the final summary. Verse 11, But you are light as the fires, all of you, who illuminate with mere sparks. Walk then by the light of your fires and by the sparks you have kindled. This shall you have from my hand, you shall lie down in agony. In other words, they're just troublemakers who are lighting fires all over the place that people need to keep putting out. The light that they have of truth is like a mere spark in comparison to the light that the Lord has sent in the person of his servant or to the greater light that the Lord himself is. Because the servant, although he's a light, which is a power of creation, the servant himself is only a forerunner to the Lord himself, who is the greater light, who is like the sun, popping up over the horizon, and the servant leads into God's presence. But they won't even have anything to do with the servant. So, they're going to end up in agony. This shall you have from my hand, that is, from my left hand, the king of Assyria, you will experience all the covenant curses that come upon the wicked through the instrumentality of the Lord's left hand, the king of Assyria.